Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a patient interview, case presentation, or interview or discussion with one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at orgonomy.org. The best way to help the American College of Orgonomy spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. If you're interested in training with the ACO, you can learn more about the medical organ therapy or social ergonomy training programs. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org. This episode features the audio from one of our ACO case presentation series webinars. Dr. Edward Chaska tells me about a young man named Bill who he treated after recently being hospitalized and still recovering from an episode of psychosis. He had a problem with drugs and pornography, but he was also struggling with tolerating his intense feelings of pleasure in an exciting new relationship. Today's presentation is entitled, A Sexually Confused Young Man, and is presented by Dr. Edward Chaska. Dr. Chaska is a board-certified medical ergonomist practicing in Wyoming, Pennsylvania. He treats children, adolescents, adults, and couples, and he's a member of the American College of Ergonomy, and he teaches classes in social ergonomy. So I'm really excited to hear about this presentation of yours. So why don't we start off just by, um, maybe you could say something about how you decided to present this young man today. It was a couple of things that attracted me to uh, presenting this. One was uh, he was just such a lively young man and so intelligent, had a lot of very good insight. He, he made uh, very rapid progress in his treatment. But the other issue was that his problems were so similar to so many young people today that I see. Uh, problems with drugs and alcohol, and problems with sexuality. I see. So who was this young man, and how did he come to your treatment? Well, he came to me referred out of a psychiatric hospital, uh, and he had been, he'd been at college, and uh, he had started using a lot of drugs and alcohol, marijuana, alcohol, and then had started to add in some amphetamine later on in an attempt to kind of keep his head clear. And what's his name? Uh, his name is Bill. Bill. Uh, and uh, he started to have periods where he felt kind of off and out of it. This involved the drugs and alcohol, but it also involved a, a new relationship that he'd gotten in. Now, he told me that he had always been a very sexually active guy, but he'd never had a, a any kind of committed or long-term relationship. Hmm. And his second year of college, he had he'd gone home and he'd met a young woman from another school and he really fell for her. He felt deeply attracted to her and missed her when they were away. And, and this was a new thing for him. He, he seemed a little surprised 
that this kind of thing could happen. And I think it was almost too much happiness for him uh, because when he got back to his school, he went back to his old old ways, drinking, uh, smoking marijuana, hooking up. In fact, the day that she was to arrive on his campus for a visit, he was out drinking and with another woman. Uh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was, you know, clearly he was, he was, he was frightened and trying to undermine the situation. He, he, he didn't know what to do and, and he kind of blew the situation up. Uh, now the young woman forgave him and, and wanted to stay in the relationship. Uh, but this was too much for him. The drinking, uh, the marijuana, the Adderall use got way out of control and he started to develop uh, some problems with his thinking. He began to get this overwhelming sense of uh, how uh, the world was evil and he was evil and that he needed to be punished and then actually developed the delusion that he was in fact living in purgatory and being punished for his sins. Ooh, wow. uh, the drug and alcohol, of course, but also he had a lot of guilt about some past sexual behaviors. Uh, he started, be he was unable to sleep. He was up for several nights in a row and this, uh, his mind was racing and he began to hear uh, voices talking to him, seeing shadows in his vision. And he couldn't go to school anymore. So he went home. And he did a little better there, but his parents were very concerned. So what they did is they took him to the emergency room. Uh, he was evaluated. He was admitted to a psychiatric unit for about a week. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing about this was most psychiatric units uh, with this story would put you right on an antipsychotic. Mm -hmm. but, but this unit didn't. The, you know, they wanted to give him a chance to clear off the drugs and alcohol, uh, gave him a sedative for the first couple of nights. And after that, just let him clear on his own I see. and uh, refer him to me once he'd completed his stay there. And so what was it like that a first appointment with him after this hospitalization and clearing from the initial intensity and um, real psychotic experience he had? Well, when he came into the room, I could tell he was, uh, you know, a real live wire. He was just kind of lit up with energy, uh, probably more than he could handle. And his eyes had this kind of burning look and, and staring off into space. And he was very expressive and talking. Like, really like a zealot? What? Like a zealot? Yes. <laughs> it's like a zealot. And... Initially, uh, I mean, he didn't want to hear what I had to say. He had this story to tell, and it was, you know, I, I let him talk. Uh, but I, as I began to think about how, you know, how do I approach this young man? He's so expanded, and yet his thinking is so off. Uh, I started to focus on two things. One is to get him to fill in the details of what he was saying, to be very clear, because his mind would skip things and uh, things wouldn't be clear. So I would ask him questions and, and try to get him to talk more in detail about this belief that he was in purgatory. And it came out that he believed that 
the rest of the world were suffering from his sins as well, that his guilt was spreading to other people. And he was a burden on every, everyone around him. He was a burden. His, his sins were a burden on everyone else. Hmm. So to get him to talk about this and, and really be clear about it. The second thing I noticed is what's called loosening of associations. So his mind would skip uh, and you wouldn't know quite where the next thing came from. So to help him get in touch with the fact uh, that this was going on, I would always ask him to fill in the blank. You know, well, you know, how did you get there? And what? And uh, this actually brought him very quickly into an awareness see, that his mind was skipping like this. He became aware of it and began working it on it himself. And was he sober by the time he came to see you? Like, did he remain clean from drugs? He, he did. And I think that was an important part of what was happening. A lot of people, when they stop using drugs, and particularly when they stop using marijuana, will get this rush of energy. And uh, a lot of times they don't know what to do. It, it, it You know, in the 12-step circles, uh, they call it a pink cloud. There's this rush of, of energy and emotion that you've been uh, avoiding for so long, and, and your nervous system is coming back to life. Uh, you know, you can you look at drugs and alcohol as a way to avoid feeling. When, when I work with somebody with addiction problems, I, I always look at, you know, why are you using? What, what is this doing for you? You, you? you can't be moralistic about it. People use drugs and alcohol for a reason. And quite often it's things like anxiety, social anxiety, boredom, loneliness, longing for connection, depression. Uh, and so when people stop using, they get this rush of energy back. But also whatever the original problem was isn't gone. The, the drugs and alcohol didn't cure it. Uh, so in this young man's case, it was a lot of anxiety about social things and about sexuality that he'd been kind of, uh, dampening down, uh, with these drugs. And now he was flooded with feeling to his credit. He did not want to take medicine. Now, uh, I would not have hesitated to prescribe it for him if, if necessary, because it's, it's not uncommon for people, uh, in, in his situation, coming off of drugs, having some psychosis, but he wanted to face his feelings and uh, it worked out very well. If I could ask two questions. One, did you say he was using Adderall before this episode? Yeah, uh, he had started adding Adderall into the mix. We, you know, it, uh, with people who use drugs, it, the drugs cause a problem and they'll often add another drug to try to solve that. So, he was using so much marijuana and alcohol that he was very foggy all the time. And he began taking Adderall that he got illegally. He was prescribed. Uh, and he would use it and then he would use it at night so he could stay up and drink more and smoke mar more marijuana. So uh, he added that in. And stimulants themselves can cause psychosis. I'm sure you've run into that issue. Marijuana. Yeah frequently causes psychosis stimulants the even the prescribed ones that are used for ADHD can cause psychosis as well yeah and now do you have a sense of 
um, even though he was sober, although, you know, only in the short term when he came to see you, that um, he was someone who tended to develop a psychotic reaction or they were exclusively from the medicine. How did you see that? Well, you know, that's a good question. People want to know, and particularly parents want to know, is this a drug-induced psychosis or is this, you know, an underlying psychosis? And what I tell people is both. You know, there are lots of people out there who can use stimulants and uh, marijuana all their lives and they'll never become psychotic. And then there are other people who become psychotic without them. So it's it's really a, a spectrum. Mm-hmm. If, if you think of a psychosis as the breakdown in the functioning of a person's defenses uh, and that this can be brought on by using drugs, then you can see that, yes, drugs can bring on a breakdown in, in a person's functioning, uh, but other things can too. So, um, and also maybe it would be good to clarify, um, a lot of people I think do think of medicine being the treatment for someone who's psychotic, whose thoughts are disorganized. Could you say more about working with someone like that and him specifically? Well, it was, it was, uh, in some senses, a rare opportunity because uh, people in a psychotic state are often flooded with anxiety, and they're they can be difficult to engage. You know, in a psychotic state, the mind splits, and uh, the perceiving part of the mind splits from uh, the the excitation coming in from the senses of the body. And, and this split allows for misperception and uh, delusions and hallucinations. So that can make it very hard to connect with a person initially. Yes. Uh, and sometimes the best way to, to bring them into contact with reality is to use medicine. But with him, number one, he'd cleared a lot in the hospital. Mm-hmm. He was already getting better by the time he came to see me. And he had the curiosity and the willingness to, to face what he was feeling. He was excited about it, in, in fact. Yeah. And what I heard from you, too, the fact that you were able to help him clarify with your questions seemed to be a sign that he could you could work with him that way. You know, if that didn't work, maybe that would be a sign that you would need to use medicine. Is that accurate? That's correct. That's exactly the way to approach it. But to let a person go as far as they can on their own and with their own resource. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear more. How did things develop? Well, as as time went along, it, you know, we were working with the psychosis. It, it developed that there was more to the story than just drugs and alcohol and even uh, the relationship with the young woman. Uh, and of course, there always is, uh, you know, there <laughs> Uh, he'd been conflicted about his sexuality for a long time. Uh, in high school, he'd had a lot of uh, hookup kind of behaviors, uh, and that had intensified at college. And in a way, he kind of didn't recognize that there could be anything more to a relationship except a, a casual uh, sensual hookup, usually under the influence. And it surprised him. So there was this eye-opening experience with this young woman where he felt this emotional connection with her. And then 
even later on in the therapy, it came out that he had been engaging online in uh, some pornographic. For one thing, he'd been addicted to pornography for many years. Pornography, uh, excessive masturbation, and this is a common thing that that I see. And in fact, he considered himself more addicted to pornography than he was to drugs. Mm. Uh, but young men and uh, young women, even more and more today, will watch pornography, be very stirred up sexually in a in a sensual sense. Uh, will masturbate to it they can't get relief from this high excitation and it leads to this uh compulsive rounds of of repeated uh watching of pornography and masturbation without genuine uh emotional satisfaction and it's addicting and frustrating at the same time and he had had this going on since high school and then at one point he got involved in some uh, pornographic behavior himself. He started to post uh, pictures and short videos of himself, uh, initially naked, later masturbating uh, to older men. Uh, and he felt extremely guilty about this. He, uh, We talked about his various ex experiences and he said that uh, he, he had always felt that he was heterosexual, but these behaviors had made him wonder, is, was he bisexual? Did he have some kind of uh, transsexual identification or, or what? But uh, uh, that became a little clearer as the therapy went on. But he, he had this tremendous guilt over what he had done. Mm. And again, that had led to... Uh, increased use of drugs and alcohol, trying to stuff it down. And then later, uh, when the psychosis hit, flooded with guilt, and I, I think that was a lot of the guilt and the shame over this uh, was, you know, the, uh, say the breeding ground for this delusion that he was evil and had to suffer in purgatory for his sins. I see. And so this was happening when he was in high school and then early college, and this was all something that no one else knew about in his life? He had not been in treatment, and he hadn't talked to anybody about it. Uh, he, his family or, you know? He, he, hadn't, he, he hadn't talked to his family about it. He, he thought he could solve it himself, and, you know, a lot of people do that. They'll try, oh, you know, I'll use drugs. That'll, you know, that's sort of a subculture in the world today that, yeah, you can just use drugs and, and take care of any problem. Dr. Chaskin, you said something about his curiosity, but is it accurate to say he, there's an also an openness to him? Because talking about something that intense, uh, e even in therapy, you know, sometimes takes years for people to do. Yeah. Could you comment on that? Yeah, well put. That's uh, really more than curiosity. What one of the things that was very attractive about him was his openness. You know, yeah. It, many times it takes years to, before someone's ready to talk about the sexuality. Now, a part of that was the psychosis, this, this breakdown of normal societal values, and, and that helped him. But he, 
uh, he didn't have a bad reaction to it. You know, many people, uh, often a psychotic person could tell you all these deep truths about themselves and then become paranoid of, of you. And, oh, I said too much. This is horrible. I'm a terrible person. He didn't get that reaction. He liked the, the connection we were developing and he grew with it. I see. Was there any paranoia involved in um, his uh, treat his symptoms or involved in his therapy? Limited, uh -huh. uh, yes. In that, you know, in the beginning, he presented it as a drug and alcohol problem, and then after a while, he knew he could trust me. Then he talked about the girlfriend versus the promiscuous behavior, and then a little while longer, and he talked about. Uh, the pornography and the masturbation and the last thing was this uh exhibitionistic uh videos that he posted online i so see it, it it was it was stepwise but really remarkable that uh someone could go that that uh far and that quickly yes yes and Ch dr chaska was he in school still while he was in therapy with you or did he take time off or what happened I I advised him to take time off and he wasn't ready to, he wanted to go back to school and, uh, but he wasn't ready. It, it could have led to another break. You know, eh, it, it's very, it's, it's hard enough to recover from a psychosis and from drug and alcohol use, uh, when you're focusing on your therapy, but to put himself back in the situation where all this had taken place and where many of his friends were using drugs heavily and there was this, you know, uh, casual sex type of, uh, atmosphere going on. It would, it would have been very risky to him. I advised him, uh, you know, I, I told him he should take a year off. You know, he wasn't happy to hear that, but he at least took my advice and actually wound up, uh, you know, at the end of the program, going someplace into a sober living community, uh, so yeah, maybe you could say very open to it to my advice. He took it. Uh huh. Can you say more about that in terms of yeah how things progressed and in, in your treatment with him? Well, when we we got to uh, the part about the, the homosexual behaviors, his anxiety kicked up again, mm -hmm. uh, and we sat down and we had a talk about it, and I said. You know, you're questioning what your sexuality is. Where are your feelings? You know, which of these relationships has given you the most satisfaction? Where, uh, you know, where do you want to put your energy? And when he looked at it, you know, it was it was really far and away and easy for him to decide that what what really interested him the most and and uh, gave him the most satisfaction was the relationship with this young woman, mm. you know, cause there was more to it than just hooking up sexually. He really liked her and, and this kind of surprised him, you know, he hadn't had that before. Uh, but also he had to learn to tolerate that kind of feeling. Love is a tremendously powerful and expansive feeling and he wasn't used to it. And he certainly wasn't used to tolerating feelings without drugs. So once, you know, once he had recognized that this is what he wanted to pursue, 
then he had to set himself on a path where he was going to be able to tolerate it, tolerate the excitation, to tolerate the happiness. So was he with this young woman while he was in therapy with you? How, how did Was that part of um, his therapy, his continued relationship with her? Uh, they continued to have a relationship, uh, but they weren't seeing each other physically. Uh-huh. He had kind of, he, he was kind of taking time off from that too, to get himself together. Uh, and probably rightly so that, uh, again, the, uh, to jump back into that, uh, could have had the same kind of, uh, effect on him that jumping back into college did, but they were staying in touch. She was following his progress. I see. So it's a more superficial, limited relationship enough that he could take that, you know, he could tolerate that. Well, it could. He backed off a little bit to a level that he could stand and not have to use drugs and alcohol and not have to become psychotic. Could you say something about satisfaction with love and sex? Because I think that some people may use that term and, and may have different definitions of it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that, uh, for him and for many people, it's, it's a revelation that an emotionally connected relationship can be much more satisfying in, in itself, but also can be, uh, can lead to a much more satisfying sexual relationship. So when there's deep, love and in uh the sexual act it's more moving and more uh, more satisfying when i think of satisfying i think of almost when you're satisfied you don't want more it's not like when you were mentioning with pornography where you know he, he's compulsively going for more and more and more um there's some aspect and i don't think it you know you quantify it, it's different for different people but there's some aspect of a lull where you're, you're satisfied, you're content. <laughs> right. And you let things build up, yeah. you know, and that's an interesting point uh, about uh, what you said before about them kind of backing off. They jumped, jumped into a sexual relationship really fast mm-hmm. and they backed off, you know, and they were starting to, to talk more to each other. And I think that was a, a very good thing too. To get to know each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a concept. Yeah. Wow. And so then what? So we got to this and I could see his thinking starting to coalesce again. You know, he would, when he would talk about this sense of being in purgatory, he'd say, well, you know, I I realize that's not really going on. I, I still think it might be, but you could see his mind start to get put back together. His normal mental defenses and what came out. And I think it was probably something that was part of his character. And for a long time is he was an overthinker. He thought obsessively, uh, uh, about a lot of things. Now, this is not something that I would want to stop at that point. This is him putting his brain armoring back together. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he would think obsessively he'd have to, you know, go into things too much. And I did point it out to him and he agreed. Yeah, I, I think too much about things, but at that point it it wasn't a bad thing. It was him developing some armoring and some defenses 
Gotcha. I think you said something you alluded to him going to another program or a housing um, program. What he yes, he'd been initially resistant to any specialized drug and alcohol treatment. And when he came in and he was in that expansive messianic state, you know, with the glowing eyes and everything, I'm never going to use again. I don't need that stuff. But as he got back to himself, he began to have strong urges to use again. And he was starting to struggle. And, uh, at that point, he was seeing uh, a drug and alcohol counselor at the same time, and we got together and we decided that you and the counselor got together. We talked, yes, and decided to, you know, he was past the need to go to rehab, mm-hmm. uh, but that to be involved in a uh, therapeutic community where he would learn to use the uh, belong to the twelve step community and and learn how to get support from other people uh and the the basic uh, structure and its tendency of of addiction and how how to fight it and and it's a it's really a a, an armoring process a a defensive process of learning that these urges are going to come they're going to come at you in a disguised way that's going to make it look like it's really the right thing, you know, whether it's, oh, I haven't had any desire to use in so long, so I could just use once, or, you know, I never use this drug, so I could probably use a little of this. Uh, uh, the, the, your mind will trick you mm. uh, into relapsing. So uh, if you, you go and you become part of a, a recovery community, And you learn about these things and you learn the steps to take, which is to belong uh, for most people to belong to a 12 step community, either narcotics anonymous or marijuana anonymous or uh, alcohol anonymous, uh, is a very valuable thing. And and to develop the people you can call, uh, and talk to about your situation and work, working the steps is very valuable too. Uh, I, I happen to see the 12 step program as being a, a systematic way to reform the normal social defenses, you know, of being honest, of not stealing, not lying, uh, being responsible. Uh, and so I encourage patients who have drug and alcohol problems to participate in that. Okay. And there's the idea of the higher power too, which I think is very helpful. The concept of it's important to feel like you belong to something bigger than yourself. And that's, uh, I I think that's the best way, you know, the 12 steps, you don't have to go to church or believe in religion or even have any, uh, specific concept of God, but the sense that you're part of some bigger aspect of nature or creation and it it fights the, the there's a certain narcissism in addiction that uh they in AA they call it i want what i want when i want it and that becomes <laughs> that becomes the the most important principle in your life yeah and of course that's usually a drink or a drug or you know and you, you get into this cycle of just satisfying this narcissistic need and uh you know that 
belonging to something bigger than yourself helps overcome that narcissist. Hmm. I hadn't heard it put that way. I like that. I it, never it. It's good. You know, they have a lot of great sayings that that uh, put things in a pithy way. Yeah. Or very, very much character and analysis. Yeah. So how long was this time that you work with Bill for from when he first got out of the hospital to when he went to the sober living? Eight weeks. Eight weeks. <laughs> so this, this guy all of that came out in eight weeks. Eight weeks. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. He was amazing. He was, you know, at, I'm sure down the road there's there's trouble. He's not he's not through with his, you know. There's going to be issues with mistrust with him. Mm-hmm. There's going to be issues with, you know, cravings for for drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, his mind's going to tell him, oh, I you. He's going to be anxious or lonely or in conflict with his girlfriend or something, and and the brain's going to tell him, oh, you know, you get rid of all this if you just get high again. So there's a lot more work for him to do. Yeah. Uh, but I think that for the time we had together, it was pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps uh, one day in the future, he'll call you again. Yes. I, I'm hoping so. Yeah. He went out of state. So um, I, I I can't see him until he comes back in the area, but uh-huh. hopefully will and hopefully we'll reconnect. We can do a second webinar maybe. Yeah. Before I move on to questions from the audience, is there anything else about his treatment progression that you'd like to let the audience uh, know about? Let's see. We covered most of it. I I guess the one thing that we, we didn't hit on too hard is the, uh, uh, the destructiveness of the internet and internet pornography in young people's lives. You know, I I know you know that I I work uh, some time at a drug and alcohol rehab, mm-hmm. and one of the things we do is cut off that connection. You know, there's very limited access to computers, to to cell phones, even the TV, and it's remarkable. What do people do? Yeah, they talk to each <laughs> other. It's the most amazing thing. <laughs> they talk. They they. They have a, a service, a non-denominational service, and they, they have little shows where they sing and uh, get up and talk about their treatment. It, it's, you know, it's, it's like the old days before we had these things. People talked to each other and entertained each other. Wow. But so many of them, and I always make it part of my evaluation, you know, what's your pornography use? What's your video game use? What's your use of... Uh, social media, uh, YouTube, your phone, and so many of them, uh, it, it's a massive part of their lives. Uh, in fact, in many young men, the first addiction is video games, even before they touch marijuana. Uh, but most of them find that they really appreciate the time away. Some of them will complain, but, uh, you know, to be away from that phone and, and the internet yeah. is liberating and a revelation. Do you, do you know with Bill how um, early he got into pornography and, and was that something that came up during? You know, I, I can't remember specifically. I, I would 
guess from the way you described it, probably 13 or 14. I see. You know, right at the cusp between middle school and high school. And I think that's a very common time. And young people have a lot of access to this, this stuff on the internet, yeah. you know, uh, children. And I like what you highlighted, which is it, it, it's whether with drugs or pornography or social media and video games, it's not moralistic, but what is this actually doing for you? And are, are you happy with how things are essentially? So let's look at some of the questions from the audience. Okay, um, there's one question here. What role, if any, did his relationship with his family have in the problems he was having? Well, you know, that's an interesting point. I had no contact with his family. Uh, he handled this whole thing on his own, which was for... Uh, that's kind of remarkable itself. It was remarkable itself. And I didn't even think of that until this question came up. But I, I had, uh, he handled it all on his own. What I do know is that he trusted his family enough to go back there when things got bad. And when they saw the shape he was in, they had the sense to take him in for an evaluation and get him treatment. So to me, that speaks of a, 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 a pretty good family relationship. But uh, other than that, he handled it on his own like an adult. Wow. There's a question here. You mentioned he had eight weeks in therapy. Do you find young people react more quickly to therapy than older adults? That's a good question. Uh, young people, as in children, yes. Young people, as in young adults, yes and no. In some ways, they're you know much more flexible uh, but there's often a mistrust of authority uh, that you have to work through th first. Now, with this yet guy, there wasn't that wasn't much there, and that allowed his therapy to uh, progress progress very quickly. But there's a pervasive mistrust of traditional authority now in our society, and that means teachers and parents and doctors and therapists uh, and Typically, with someone his age, it takes a lot longer to break through that. Uh, with him, it just wasn't there. And I, I don't know why. That may, may have been uh, part of this psychosis is it just swept away so much of the, you know, social facade that he had. Yeah, interesting. I'll say from, from my own experience, you said it takes longer. I it almost feels like it's like a solid year before someone really looks at you as an authority when we're talking teenager to young adult. And I, I have numerous experiences, even when things are good between us, it's like what I say is on par with a friend or what you read online. It's, yeah. it's not that it's dismissed. And this like, much below the, the video influencer and the rapper, you know? Yeah, but it's just, it's like just another idea among many that they're considering and looking at you know that's right yeah and and, as and i'd say for for an addict it's probably two years usually before i get to the point of seeing them on the couch doing any biophysical work now which none of that i did with with him mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's quite often two years before uh the character is put together well enough again that they can tolerate 
uh, that kind of work. Yeah. Wow. There's a question here. In all of your years as a therapist, are you seeing that young people today are truly having more problems with their sexual identities or that some kind of media hype? Wow. That's a good question. I wish I... I think that people have always struggled with sexuality. There's always been tremendous anxiety uh, with young people, adolescents in particular, with the sexuality, but that in the past era, uh, there were expectations, and you might break them, so say you might have sex uh, before marriage, and that might have been you know, kind of a no-no, but uh, you kind of knew where you stood, and that gave people uh, some structure uh, that helped them tolerate the anxiety of sexuality. Uh, now it seems like that's gone, and anything goes, and if anything goes, it's more anxiety-provoking because you've got to decide what goes for you in addition to any fears you might have about yourself or about connecting with other people or about what sex is like or, uh, you know, what my partner is going to think of me or so I do think it's worse for them. Uh, but I do think there's also a hype, uh, and particularly there's a hype of Let's not look at emotion. Let's not look at connection. Uh, let's just look at, you know, anything goes. And uh, I, I think that makes the problem worse. Yeah, I, I like uh, how you put it. I agree with what you said. Uh, you know, the old school repressed, you know, very moralistic view of sexuality, even though it had structure that could help, you know, kind of give you guidelines, even if it didn't quite fit how you felt. Um, but now with anything goes, it's just so unclear and with people being less just in touch with themselves. And that's what you were really talking about with Bill, which is if he's out of touch with himself, he can't even figure out, you know, am I attracted to men, women, this, that he, he just yeah. isn't connected with himself. And unfortunately people have been less connected with themselves. And then if you combine being less connected with yourself in a society that's less structured for better or worse, I think it adds to the confusion. And I think that this is leading to an, a new phenomena that I'm reading about online of asexuality. People who just say, throw up their hand, I'm not sexual at all. I'm not interested. I'm not, I'm not even putting a toe in the water, uh, you know, and just withdraw from it entirely. And of course that's a tragedy to, to lose that, special connection that we have as as mammals and people and biological beings yeah and and on this note there's another question the person wrote what's the difference between sexual confusion and actual homosexuality i think we touched on it but well homosexuality uh someone is attracted to people of the same sex and they're clear about it they're not confused and in fact, many will tell you, oh, I knew that from the time I was a child. Uh, but confusion is this, you know, am I 
am I homosexual? Am I heterosexual? Am I interested? Am I polyamorous? Am I uh, someone who wants to be in a committed relationship? This was the confusion he had, and particularly uh, what the confusion he just didn't understand about an uh, emotionally committed relationship. Somehow, it, it it he never said as much, but it it struck me as is almost it hadn't occurred to him. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. This question we touched on, but maybe we can reiterate is viewing internet pornography very common among young people? And the second question is where are the parents? Well, I'll get rid of the, the first question. I don't know where the parents are. They, they certainly are, are not at, at that involved. Uh, but I think internet pornography from the young men that I see is extraordinarily common. And uh, a lot of them will put it behind them if they get into a relationship. Uh, some never do. Some of them will try to combine pornography with a relationship. I, I think that always hurts the relationship. Uh, another interesting thing uh, that I, I saw online two weeks ago is that something in the neighborhood of 35% of young women watch pornography, which is not something I'd realized. I'd now start, uh, you know, with the, the young women addicts that I see, I now add that to my evaluation because uh, apparently it's, uh, women are becoming much more involved with pornography too. I don't have as much experience, uh, with that. Yeah. I have a young man that, that I've been working with and this came up actually fairly recently. He's about 25 and in a committed relationship. And what was striking about what he said was with his uh, uh, pull to pornography, there was this lack of shame about whatever he'd want to do sexually. He didn't have to bring it out into the open in his relationship. And he doesn't even know if that's acceptable or not. It's just, it can't even come up. There's so much shame there involved. Yeah. Yeah. But there was also this aspect of it, of it's all about me. Like I don't have to worry about the other person at all. Yes. And that really was striking. Yes. I, th I think you've hit on two very important points. Well, one is it's liberating in some way for people. They, uh, you know, they don't have to worry about their, their guilt and their inhibitions. Uh, but also, there's there's nobody there but a, a screen. Yeah. You know, people excite each other. And there's a lot more potential for that if there's two people rather than one. <laughs> it, it, it almost sounds so simple. Yeah. Yeah. One of my mentors, I think it was Dr. Chris, said something about Two people, just somehow that seems to be a stable, uh, a stable pair, you know? Yeah. Um, one, three doesn't seem to be satisfying, but somehow think, two seems to come together. Yeah. I don't think threesomes quite work out as well either. Somebody's always kind of left out. Yeah. You know? Anything else, Dr. Chaster, you'd like to say before we wrap up this webinar? This has been a, a wonderful discussion. Just a... Uh, that this young man is such a good example of how far people 
can go in therapy if they simply trust the process, connect with the therapist and open up and, and say the truth. Say, the tr say your truth uh, and what's on your mind and it will take you a long way. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Chaska. All right. Thank you, Dr. Bird. How do you feel after listening to Bill's story? What do you think? I'm rooting for Bill. I hope he can stay sober, face his feelings, and see where his relationship with his girlfriend goes. The best way to help the ACO spread his knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at ergonomy.org. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. Since 1968, psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Ergonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives relationships, medical ergon therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward often without the use of medication.